Welcome to Science for the Real World, Conversations with Canadian Clinicians. This episode, part of Canadian IBD Today, is about IL-23s in Crohn's disease and is sponsored by Abvi. Our moderator, Dr. Chris Ma, is joined by Dr. Brian Fagan and Dr. Alan Lim. Hello everyone, my name is Chris Ma, I'm a gastroenterologist at the University of Calgary. Tonight I'm uh, thrilled to be joined by two leaders in the IBD community in Canada to talk about the role of IL-23 inhibition for the treatment of Crohn's disease. Uh, I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Brian Fagan, Professor of Medicine at Western University and Senior Scientific Director at Alimentive as well as Dr. Alan Lim, who's a gastroenterologist and uh, expert clinical trialist at the University of Alberta. So it's really a pleasure to have you guys on the podcast tonight. Um, We'll get started with the first question right away. And um, Brian, this first question's for you. Um, It's more of a historical perspective on treatment for Crohn's disease. You know, before the early 2000s, we really only had steroids and immunomodulators. Then for the better part of a decade, we really just had anti-TNF therapy. Now in 2023, we have more modern monoclonal therapies. How has that changed the risk-benefit profile versus pre-biologic and versus the anti-TNF days of uh, Crohn's disease management? Well, Chris, I'm not surprised you asked me that question, being the elderly statesman. Uh, Alan, you are children and wouldn't remember the pre-biologic era. Certainly, when all we had were immunosuppressives and corticosteroids, uh, it was pretty dismal for many patients. And certainly, infliximab and adalimumab made an enormous change. And uh, we all saw patients that would have uh, ended up with disastrous results without those drugs. However, those agents had their limitations. Uh, specifically, uh, they were specific immune suppressives and um, are associated with increased risk of serious infection. So really, things began to change with the development of vedolizumab first as a specific agent, uh, just affecting the gut, then ustekinumab, and, the, and then subsequently the IL-23s, um, where these agents uh, unexpectedly had very low rates of uh, serious side effects. Um, the other point I would underscore is that infliximab, particularly as a drug, was highly immunogenic and was underdosed, um, that we really got the dosing wrong. And that led to the whole concept of therapeutic drug monitoring. And I would just make the point that as we evolve into the modern era with the newer agents, that um, both uh, reactive TDM and certainly proactive TDM are gonna play a lesser role in our management strategies. Yeah, we, we've been really lucky, of, you know, certainly in recent years in terms of safety profile of our monoclonal therapies. I think it's really made a big difference in clinical practice. Alan, you're a very experienced clinical trialist. You're probably one of the highest enrolling sites in the world for the Rizinkizumab Phase 3 program. How does what Brian described in terms of risk benefit for new therapies and new molecules, how does that align with your real world experience? Thanks, Chris. I I think that my real-world experience with rizikizumab really aligns quite closely with the trial data. When I look at the patients that I enrolled, which is probably 30 to 40 of them, uh, about 40 to 50% of them actually achieve substantial clinical remission response. 
by one year or even week 12. You know, their abdominal pain scores, their stool frequency scores were a lot better. In terms of risks, you know, we always worry about infection risks or side effects. Aside from my patients all getting COVID-19 at some point in the clinical trial because it was during the pandemic, I really didn't see any infection risks other than the odd bout of food poisoning, cold or flu. And I think one of my patients was hospitalized for, you know, a broken leg from a work accident. Yeah, that's really reassuring, actually, and really highlights, you know, the reality of living through 2019 to 2023, at least to present day. Bren, you know, I think when we think about IL-23 targeted therapies, you know, a lot of our colleagues ask this question, which is, how can you block just, you know, one molecule in IL-23, and how can that actually be more effective than blocking both IL-12 and IL-23? And if from an immunological perspective, why would specific targeting of IL-23 be potentially better? Um, And before you answer that, the second part of the question is, you know, Do we have data to support that, either in inflammatory bowel disease or in other indications? I think we've learned a lot on the evolution of this pathway. And it started with ustekinumab, where we thought we were blocking IL-12. And because of the sharing of the P40 subunit between IL-12 and 23, we were blocking both the Th1 and Th17 pathways. And that, the concern was that ultimately that approach would result in severe immune suppression and just the opposite occurred. And uh, with the advent of ustekinumab therapy and psoriasis, and we've had enormous experience with that over more than a decade now, it's apparent that this is quite safe. So one of the fundamental questions was why blocking 12 and 23 would be safe. And it turns out that this relates to the fact that the 23 pathway is really fundamental to very specific inflammatory diseases, not all immune diseases. In fact, it's just the IBDs and um, the enthesitides, uh, including Anxpont, psoriatic arthritis, and um, uveitis. So blocking the, that pathway, actually downregulating specifically, uh, has a tremendous beneficial effect. And remember, one of the risk factors for side effects is disease activity. So more effective directed therapies result in safer drugs. And then as far as the data from animal models and that, uh, one one really important observation is that the IL-23 knockout mouse is actually immune competent. So I think that kind of explains the situation. And then back to psoriasis regarding efficacy, we don't have the data yet from comparative trials of 1223 ustekinumab versus the specific 23 inhibitors, but the data in psoriasis are in, and it's quite clear that, as you alluded to, that uh, the more specific targeting of 23 is uh, a more effective strategy. And uh, it's a tough question because why that is specifically at a molecular or pathway level isn't isn't known. There are some interesting observations, though, that I think uh, help us. Uh, First off, it comes from the clinic, not the lab. Uh, But we know that our experiments with blocking IL-17, which is the effector cytokine of the TH17 pathway in patients with Crohn's disease, was um, actually very uh, unsuccessful and unhelpful in that it appeared to increase the risk of certain infections, fungal infections specifically. And we know that IL-17 in the gut is protective uh, and important for barrier function. In IBD, that may be a bad 
strategy because local production of IL-17 by TH17 positive cells appears to be a protective mechanism. And there was no evidence of efficacy in that approach. And then conversely, in ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis, we see a very interesting differential effect in that blockade of 23 is not effective in egg spawn where it is in psoriatic arthritis. And it may be analogous situation to the gut in that local production of IL-17 by TH17 cells is important in angst and can't be overcome by systemic blockade of 23 higher up in the pathway. So, you know, that, that, that's really taking into clinical observations and speculating back to the pathogenesis being common but different in these diseases. Yeah, that's a great answer, Brian. It's uh, no wonder I only ask you the hard questions. Hey, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, I, I think is a nice segue to this question for Alan is, Alan, you know, Brian mentioned potential head-to-head studies. I know your site's involved in some of these studies in Crohn's disease. Can you tell us a little bit about these, what mechanisms of action are being compared and uh, how those might influence our, our practice moving forward? So right now, one of the studies that we are involved in would be the sequence study. And in this study, they're comparing ustekizumab, a P40 inhibitor versus rizikizumab, which is a P19 subunit inhibitor. We don't have the data yet, but it's going to be interesting to see whether or not there's an inferiority or superiority bias based on this trial. Some of the other IL-23 trials have done comparator arms. For example, the Galaxy trial is comparing galsokizumab versus usikizumab, as well as the Vivid study looking at mirikizumab. Um, they're comparing their drug against usikizumab as well. So I think we're going to be inundated with a lot of data comparing all these different molecules in the next year or so. It's a tremendous evolution. Hey, you know, even a couple of years ago, we said we didn't have head-to-head trials in IBD, and now hopefully we'll have very clinically relevant answers from some of these big studies that you mentioned. Brian, in, in terms of newer phase three trials that have been recently completed or that are ongoing, could you talk a little bit about how those trials have evolved and how those endpoints have changed? And how does that influence your ability to compare even indirectly rates of mucosal healing in phase three programs? Well, if we start at ulcerative colitis trials, the FDA has shown a pretty important leadership here in that we've refined the definition of clinical uh, remission in UC, uh, getting rid of the physician global rating and insisting on a bleeding score of zero as a criterion for remission. And that's actually improved the specificity and lowered placebo rates. So that, that's been a positive development. The other aspect has been the implementation of uh, central reading of endoscopy in both UC and CD trials. Again, that's helped control placebo rates and uh, led us to improve quality in trials generally. So I think that's been a very positive development um, generally. Uh, Also in UC, histopathology is emerging as an important endpoint, and it'll be interesting to watch this over the years. There's a lot of clinical resistance to using it for good reason. We don't have pathologists who really interpret biopsies in the way the trials are interpreting them. And so watch this space over the next five or 10 years because it's likely to be an important endpoint. In Crohn's disease, as usual, things are more complicated. And really the the most important development is we've moved away from symptom-based endpoints 
and uh, qualifying patients with objective evidence of inflammation by endoscopy. And uh, that's helped tremendously, again, controlling placebo rates, which has been the real thorn in, in our sides uh, methodologically over the years that has really interfered with our ability to detect effective treatments. So the big thing has been, if you look at, uh, for example, the most recent Rizinkizumab study or the uh, upacitinib studies in Crohn's disease, we see endoscopic data that, that is not comparable to previous studies um, in the sense that we have very sophisticated central reading and um, there's been an emphasis on improving the um, methodology for uh, incorporating objective measure of endoscopy, uh, a 50% reduction in the SCSCD score with a clinical endpoint. Um, so it's, it's, it's really improved things tremendously. Now, the question of comparison, um, I guess I'm not the greatest proponent of network meta-analysis for this reason. You know, one of the fundamental premises of network meta-analysis is that you can integrate uh, placebo controls from trials that were performed a decade ago to current uh, contemporaneous control groups. And that, that's a really challenging assumption uh, given what we just talked about regarding the evolution of endpoints, it, it does create an issue there. Yeah, devil's definitely in the details in some of these NMAs around transitivity and whether or not that's truly preserved. Alan, you know, as someone who is a trialist, and you know, Brian talked about endoscopy in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, you've seen some of these therapies achieve mucosal healing in the trial setting. Is that your new clinical standard of care? And you know, how do you see that being integrated in terms of your clinical practice, both for induction and, and maintenance therapy? I think that as any gastroenterologist who's heavily invested in the care of their IBD patients, um, our treatment targets have evolved over time. If you look at the current stride guidelines with the ultimate treat-to-target goal of mucosal healing or improvement, I think that's the goal that we're all aiming for. For most of my IBD patients, we would typically assess their disease for mucosal healing at six to nine months. Realistically, it's probably more like nine to 12 months given the resource and time constraints. So I think we've always looked for mucosal healing or improvement in all of our IBD patients in the last couple of years. What was really nice about being a part of the trial was that, you know, we have endoscopic data as early as week 12. So it was really great to be able to correlate the clinical responses at week 12 to what I was seeing endoscopically for a lot of the patients. It would probably change my practice in the sense that, you know, if you have a patient where you're questioning whether or not rizikizumab or one of the newer therapies was working for them, knowing that you have data at week 12 um, showing response in a certain number of the patients, then you could probably reassess them sooner and switch their therapies if they're not responding. Yeah, that would be a total paradigm shift in how we've managed Crohn's disease up to now. So Brian, we now have multiple therapeutic options available in Canada. More are coming. How do clinicians decide which therapy to use first? And, you know, there's probably two schools of thought. One would be to say, I have these newer therapies. They show mucosal healing even in treatment failure populations. So should I save that for last or should I go with hit me with your best shot first kind of approach? Yeah, there's a lot of balls in the air about deciding the initial choice of therapy, and it's a balance between the therapeutic index, availability, 
uh, root of administration number of things. So that could be a 40 minutes, but I'll get to the point. Patients like safe drugs. And as I started out by saying that one of the biggest changes in therapeutics in the last 20 years has been classes of drugs that are safe. And so Veto, Usta, the 23s are all really quite safe drugs. So in most patients, they're going to be preferable choices to TNF antagonists. Now, there are notable exceptions. If you have a patient, if you're wearing a white coat or the patient may be in an environment where they're going to be around white coats, uh, TNF antagonists are still very valuable induction drugs. And so we shouldn't forget that. And um, overlap uh, syndromes or concomitant inflammatory diseases like psoriasis, ankylosing spondylitis are going to change your uh, approach on an individual patient basis. But, um, you know, the safer drugs are becoming dominant. Now, the notion of reserving your best quotation marks drug for last, I think that's an antiquated idea. And it comes from an era where we didn't have many choices. And the kind of naive notion that if you didn't um, preserve that drug, you wouldn't have it when you needed it. Remember, though, that with biologic drugs, there's a drop-off with every agent that you use of about 10 to 15% in relative efficacy. And so if you start off with a low number using your less efficacious drug, you get to uh, a very low likelihood of response early, uh, whereas starting with an effective drug is, is probably the way to go, especially if it's a safer drug. Well, Alan, I've saved the, the toughest question for you at the end. In terms of bio-experienced, bio-naive patients, um, you know, we, we have a mix of those patients going through clinical trials. Now in your practice, how do you position our currently available therapies for both of those groups, for bio-naive and for bio-experienced Crohn's disease? Yeah, that's 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 a tough one. I, I think for my bio-naive patients, I, I agree that the first biologic you use is probably the one that's got the highest chance of being the most effective. So you want to pick a therapy that's got a high efficiency rate and low side effect or infection uh, risk. I think more than ever, it's your history is really important at this point in time because you really need to hammer down whether or not they have other extra intestinal manifestations, you know, psoriasis or uveitis, angspon, RA, things that may push you towards using an anti-TNF versus an anti-IL-23 um, versus vedolizumab. For your biofailure patients, you know, as you fail more drugs, your options become more and more limited. So you may not have a lot of therapeutic options left to choose from. I think a lot of these patients for me end up in clinical trials. And if you look at the trials that we've been a part of, for example, the rizikizumab trial, if you look at the Motivate data, over 50% of the patients in that induction trial had failed more than one biologic before enrolling into the study. So you're talking about a, a really drug-resistant patient population, and they were still able to achieve you know, a very high clinical and endoscopic response of around 30% by week 12. So I'm a big fan of rizikizumab based on that data and what I saw in the trial. Awesome. Well, that's all the time that we have for tonight. Uh, I just want to take a moment to thank Brian and thank Alan for joining us tonight. You know, I think you can easily appreciate that uh, as we get more therapies for Crohn's disease, the decision-making potentially gets more complex, but also hopefully the opportunities for our patients to get better also improve. So Brian, Alan, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Uh, This is really great and much appreciated. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Science for the Real World, sponsored by AbbVie and produced by Catalytic Health.